If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 9. Uh, we're going to look at verse 31. Uh, while you're turning there, just uh, let you know kind of where we are and what we're doing. We're looking at the church today, and that church uh, being singular, but it, it has a lot of local expressions. For us, uh, we have a church called First Norfolk, but we have the church at First Norfolk uh, that gathers together here at 8, 9, 30, and 11. Uh, at our Kempsville location, we have uh, First Norfolk that uh, gathers uh, for life group at 9.30 and 11 o'clock for worship at our Volvo location. Y'all say hi to our Volvo location. Uh, we, have, we have First Norfolk uh, that meets right now uh, in our chapel, uh, uh, Iglesia Bautista del Camino, that's First Norfolk, uh, and they're meeting right now. Uh, in, a, in, in a few uh, hours, we're going to have another uh, First Norfolk gathering. That's our Russian congregation. Uh, we have uh, many, many different pictures of First Norfolk, and it's the church. And we're looking at each one of those, regardless of the time. By the way, it seems sometimes that our First Norfolk at our Kempsville location, the gathering that meets at 8 o'clock, it feels like a different uh, gathering uh, group of people than the 930 that feels different than the 11 o'clock. Uh, and that's all true. It, it, they're each one different, but we are all the church. Uh, and so what we're going to be looking at is we're looking at the church at Kempsville and at Volvo and uh, our, our Spanish service, our Russian service, our Vietnamese uh, congregation, our, our um, North African fellowship. We're looking at each one of those expressions, but what we're going to be looking at from God's Word is how we, we are the church and how that God has called the church uh, to display his glory and literally change the world. Do you realize that the church is God's plan to change the world? The church is. Uh, God has a mission that he demands to be fulfilled. And that mission calls the church into being and into action. It is this mission of God that propels us, that, that uh, creates us. Do you realize that the church was not created to make me happy? I always feel it's important to say this because we do live in a consumer kind of culture, this culture. Uh, we do live in this culture that, that views the church as an organization to make me happy. Uh, we have it confused. Some of y'all will not recognize what I'm about to do. Many of you will reflect on it with great familiarity. Uh, but there's an organization that had this, um, this commercial. It said, hold the pickle, hold the lettuce. Special orders won't upset us. All we ask is that you let us do it your way. Have it your way. Have it your way. Have it your way at Burger King, right. And so y'all like, really? That's probably 30 years old, but yes, really. And I still remember it, right? And, and many of y'all did too. But uh, we're not Burger King. We were not created by God to make everybody happy. Now, certainly the, the, the scripture paints the picture of the church serving one another in love and serving the community in love. And all of that is true, but the purpose of the church is not to make 
me happy. The purpose of the church is for me to join in the glorious work of a loving God to bring the good news of his rescuing love to those who are far from him so that together, as the church, we might change the world. We get this throughout the New Testament and hints of it in the Old Testament, but especially in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we see the church literally changing the world as it was designed to do. We, we have in the book of Acts this beautiful portrait of the church changing the world. And, and, and I want us to, to see that. Now, before we get to uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 31, I, I want to catch you up. Now, at the end of Matthew's gospel, we see that Jesus has been crucified on a cross. He's been resurrected from the dead. At the end, uh, Jesus is about to ascend uh, into heaven. He's been hanging out in the glorified body with his disciples and with his followers, and he's been teaching them and, and, and encouraging them. We don't have nearly enough of, uh, I wish we had more of what Jesus taught his disciples uh, during those uh, uh, scores of days that he spent with them before he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. But at the end of Matthew 28, he, uh, just before he ascends, he, he says to his disciples, he says, uh, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, as you go, make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've taught you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, as Acts, the book of Acts picks up, it's the second volume of Luke's gospel, but as Acts picks up, we see that Jesus, again, it picks up right there. Jesus has spent time with his followers. He's, he's taught them. They've listened. And now he's about to ascend to the right hand of the throne of God, just as he was in Matthew 28. Uh, and, and here in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says to the church, he says, uh, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be witnesses for me in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And at that moment, Jesus was lifted uh, before the throne of God, ascended into the clouds and went to the right hand of God's throne. So, so Jesus ascended, but the church remained. Why did the church remain? Because God had a mission to be fulfilled. And so the church gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem and they prayed together and they, 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 they fasted together and they were looking for uh, the promise of Acts 1-8, the power of God falling upon them uh, when the Holy Spirit comes. And so they're praying toward that end. In Acts chapter 2, uh, we see the Holy Spirit falling upon the believers, upon followers of Jesus at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit indwelling them and empowering them for the mission that God had given them, not so that they could have some ecstatic utterance, so that they could, but so that they could fulfill this mission, uh, going into the world and being witnesses for Jesus. And so uh, it, it made a, a commotion there uh, in Jerusalem as the Holy Spirit fell upon believers and, and people began to gather and they wanted to know uh, what was going on with these, these folks that were uh, acting pretty strangely. And, and so Peter stood up in Acts 2, beginning in verse 14, and he preached a message and he said, what you see is what God has done. And it's fulfillment of what Joel pro prophesied in, in Joel chapter 3, verse 
verses 1 through 4 in the Hebrew version, but uh, this is what Joel prophesied, and, and we're a living testament to the fulfillment of God's promise that was realized through Jesus Christ. And then he pointed his finger at all the people there, and he said, your sins killed Jesus. Jesus died for your sin. And, and after he finished preaching, the multitude asked, what, what can we do? They were convicted. They were cut to the heart. And they said, uh, they said, what must we do in light of all this, all out of who Jesus is? What must we do? And Peter said, you need to be saved and be baptized, each one of you. And, and, and so uh, on that day, 3,000 people became followers of Jesus Christ, and the church exploded. So at the end of chapter 2, they gathered together, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to uh, fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer, and, and great fear and awe was upon each one, and they lived in simplicity of heart, and, 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 and they went from house to house praising God, and, and, and they had all things in common, and they shared, and the, and the body of Christ began to grow as they grew up together in the full measure of the stature of Christ. They, they began to display the, 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 the character of Christ to everyone in Jerusalem. People knew who they were. And, and, and so as Peter and John in chapter 3 go to the temple... Uh, to, uh, to worship, as was their custom. They were passing by a guy that had, uh, had no strength in his legs. He was lame, and he couldn't walk. And, and every day, this person who was lame sat before Solomon's porch there outside the uh, uh, temple, and he begged for money so that he could live. And Peter and John were passing by. The beggar said, was begging for money. And Peter responded, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the Bible says there in Acts 3 that immediately strength came to his uh, legs and he uh, went uh, jumping and leaping and praising God. And again, it created a commotion because people who had passed by this lame man day after day now saw that he was jumping up and singing and shouting, saying that he had been healed. So a crowd gathered there outside the temple and they said, what in the world has happened? And Peter began to preach again a message about God's great love for humanity, sending Jesus to die for sinners, Jesus being raised from the dead to give new life. And the people said, what must we do? And Peter said, uh, be converted each and every one of you so that seasons of refreshing may fall upon you. And on that day, thousands came to know Jesus Christ as Savior and King. And the church exploded. Uh, then people started taking note. People that didn't like this Jesus talk, mainly religious leaders of a Jewish heritage there in Jerusalem. And so they arrested Peter and John, and they warned them, don't talk about Jesus anymore. And Peter and John responded, well, you decide what, what's better to obey you or obey God. We can't help but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And they said, we're going to talk about Jesus. And so they left there, and they went back to the church for encouragement. They prayed together as the church. And the place where they prayed and met together was shaken by the very presence of God. They had all things in common. Again, they shared with one another. People like Barnabas started selling everything he had and, and taking all the proceeds. He brought it to the apostles to be used for the purpose of advancing the mission that the church was created to fulfill. In Acts chapter 5, we see some division happening. There was a guy named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, 
And they saw what Barnabas had done. He sold all his stuff and, and gave it to the disciples. And he, they saw how uh, the church responded by applauding that and saying, way to go, Barnabas. And, and so they wanted some of that recognition. So they sold some stuff, not everything, but they sold some stuff. And then they brought a portion of the money that they had and they laid it at the apostles' feet, pretending as if they were giving with the same level of sacrifice that Barnabas did. They had a bad heart in their giving. By the way, that can happen to any of us, having a bad heart in how we give our tithes and offerings. But anyway, that's what happened. And, and uh, God's judgment fell on Ananias and Sapphira. And, and the reason the judgment fell is because they were lying to the Holy Spirit. Deceiving the Holy Spirit is a dangerous thing. Uh, the Bible says in Acts 5 that fear fell upon the church, but they still found favor in Jerusalem. Uh, they, they were uh, recognized as a people who had uh, great character, people who were following after God. And, and so the gospel began to be proclaimed again, and it began to stretch even beyond Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 6, there was another division, a kind of division in the church. And by now, the church is a mega church, meeting in a lot of different little house houses. And they were, they were gathered together in different houses. And, and, and yet, the, the church, the body of believers, whether it was First Norfolk on Kempsville or First Norfolk on Volvo or Iglesia Bautista del Camino, no matter where it was, the church was together. But then division hit. Um, one group of widows felt like they were being slighted. Uh, uh, and, and the other group of widows was being uh, honored. And so there was a civil war in the church between the widows. Widows are tough. And, and so God uh, called the apostles to uh, appoint deacons. Now this is, in Acts 6, this is where the deacon ministry is birthed. And the deacons were there to maintain the unity of the church, to serve the needs of the widows and those who are in need in the church, and to do it uh, in fairness. And, and, and we see these deacons um, really implementing ministry in a way that, that caused the church to expand. You look in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says that, that the church began to explode, that, that, that every day people were being added to the church, that the gospel was being proclaimed. Um, and then we have a guy named Stephen. Stephen was one of the deacons. Now, deacons weren't there just to serve the needs of widows. They were also there to proclaim the good news of God's rescuing love. Every person in the church was commissioned and called to share the good news of God's rescuing love. So Stephen, um, he, he's out in the streets and he's talking to the people about Jesus and he causes turmoil with these religious leaders of the Jerusalem, in Jerusalem the, of the Jewish bent and uh, they claimed that Stephen was guilty of blasphemy and they stoned him and they killed him. Uh, that persecution only ramped up after that. The guy that was holding the coats of the religious leaders who were killing Stephen, the deacon of the church, the guy that was holding the coats was a guy named Saul. We know him as Paul. And he became one of the ringleaders that would go and arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial. In Acts chapter 8, uh, verse 4, it says that those who were scattered out of Jerusalem because of the persecution, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the good news 
of God's great love everywhere they went. So they were being scattered because of persecution, but the mission was being fulfilled. They went everywhere declaring the good news. Then we see another guy named Philip. Philip was another one of the deacons. Philip uh, went and, uh, to, to meet uh, a guy from Ethiopia on a desert road. God, by his spirit, led Philip to go to meet this Ethiopian uh, on the desert road, and, and he found the Ethiopian reading the book of Isaiah. And Philip said, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy said, no, not really. And, and so Philip explained to him the purpose of Isaiah pointing to Jesus. And in that moment, this man from Ethiopia who was on his way back home to North Africa met Jesus and his life was forever changed. He was baptized on the spot. Well, at the beginning of chapter 9, we see that Saul, who we know as Paul, Saul was a persecutor of the church, and as he's persecuting the church, he got his, he got his uh, writs of, uh, of arrest, arrest warrants. He, he got those in his pocket, and he's on his way to Damascus to arrest some Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem. And on the way, Jesus appears. And Jesus brings Saul, who we know as Paul, brings Saul to his knees. And in that moment, Saul was converted. He became a follower of Jesus. One of the most ardent persecutors of Christians became now one of the most ardent missionaries for Christ. He was transformed. And, and, and so he, uh, Saul, who has been changed from the inside out, by Jesus goes to those that he was about to arrest and a guy named Ananias uh, decides he's going to baptize Saul and disciple Saul. Barnabas, who had sold all his stuff in Acts 4, Barnabas comes along and he comes alongside uh, Saul and he disciples Saul and Saul begins to preach the good news. It's amazing what begins to happen when people are saved and get on fire for telling other people about Jesus. Saul begins, and you look in chapter 9, verse 27, it says, Paul preached with great power about Jesus Christ. Well, that leads us to chapter 9, verse 31, okay? Chapter 9, verse 31. And by the way, uh, I want you to understand that the reason I tell you all that is because I want you to see the scope of the church, and really the purpose of the church is not to make us happy, but rather to change the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, so uh, chapter 9, verse 31, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, being edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. And so what we see is the church growing strong and healthy. And then as the church is growing strong and healthy, it begins to turn the world upside down. We see in Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter, Simon Peter, uh, being led by God to go to a guy named Cornelius who was a Gentile. Uh, and, and, and Peter shared the gospel with Cornelius. Cornelius was saved. He and his household came to know Christ as Savior and Lord. They were baptized, and everything began to change. Acts chapter 11, we see that the church is scattered uh, out of Jerusalem all the way uh, to a place called Antioch. And in Antioch is the first place where uh, these, Christian, these people were called Christians. 
And they began to send missionaries around the world so that by Acts chapter 17, uh, in a place called Thessalonica, there's this guy who doesn't like all this Christian stuff, and he says, these are the people that have turned our world upside down. They literally changed the world. Now, that's the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to be on mission for God to change the world. And the beauty of it is that's how God has established the church, this church, you and me, this church. So as we look at how we can be the church that changes the world, Acts chapter 9 verse 31 really helps us lean into what it means to be the kind of church God wants us to be. God establishes a healthy church vibrant, growing church so that he can change the world. That's, that's why he's established First Norfolk. 200 plus years, we've been here in the seven cities of Hampton Roads. Why? Why are we here? So that we might be the instrument of God changing the world. Now, when I talk about First Norfolk, I'm not talking about some organization on a constitution that we've established. I'm talking about you and me. First Norfolk is not primarily an organization recognized by the government of the United States. First Baptist Church Norfolk is the called together people of God that he has brought here. And now it's you and it's me. We, we are God's plan to change the world. So what are the ingredients of this healthy church, this growing church, this vital church? Well, the ingredients we see in verse 31. Now, he talks about the churches. The churches throughout Judea and Samaria and Galilee had peace. They had peace. Now, how did they get that peace? Well, it didn't come because they had read the art of the deal. Uh, It didn't come because they knew the skills of negotiation. It didn't come because they were smart or savvy or politically astute. No, the reason they had peace is because God gave them peace. The very next word is being edified. That term edified is is a term that means to be built up. It means be strengthened. What's interesting, it's a participle, and, and, and it's in the present tense, so it means that they were being edified or strengthened. But it's also passive. That means they weren't doing the strengthening. God was strengthening them. All right, so, so here's the first ingredient that we need to understand for having a healthy church so that First Norfolk can be healthy, so that you can be healthy, so that I can be healthy, so that we can be healthy. The first ingredient is that it's the work of God. God's the one who gives us peace, and God's the one who strengthens us. This is the activity of God. By the way, it's God who creates the church. It's God who called you from wherever you were and brought you here to be part of this body of believers. That is the activity of God. God is the one who establishes the church. He's the one who calls us together. He's the one who makes the soil ripe for seeds of opportunity to flourish into multiplication and growth. He is the one who strengthens the church. He strengthens you. He strengthens me. He strengthens us. We need to pray for God to give us peace and to strengthen our church. That's God's part. And by the way, he does that according to his sovereign purpose and will. Make no mistake, 
what we've experienced as a church, the ups and the downs, the uh, struggles with VDOT, all of that, that is God's sovereign plan. It is not the works of individuals or governments or agencies that are subverting God's plan, but rather it is God using those instruments and agencies to accomplish his plan. God has a plan for this body of believers, and it includes all the things that we've struggled with for the past three years. Please, let's not disregard nor demean the sovereign purposes of a living God. This is his purpose for us, but in the process of his purpose, he now brings us to the place of peace. And in that place of peace, he strengthens us as the body that he has called and created. You're here, not because you primarily chose to be here. You're here because God appointed you to be here. You are here because God brought you into this body for his purpose. God strengthens the church. That's his part, but we have a part to play. And this is great because, again, the simplicity of this passage helps us understand what our part is. What is my part? What is your part? What is our part for a healthy, growing, dynamic church? God strengthens the church. What do I do? I walk in the fear of the Lord. That's my part. That's your part. That's our part. Walking in the fear of the Lord, we're going to have a sermon series that in, in several, a couple of months on what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. Just to say it shorthand, to walk in the fear of the Lord means that I live for God's pleasure. I live my life for His pleasure. And friends, that is what a church exists to be about. Our church exists not for my pleasure, not hold the pickles, hold the lettuce, Special orders don't upset us. All we ask is that you let us have it your way. No, no, no. We exist for God's pleasure, for him to have it his way. That's what it means to live in the fear of the Lord. Now, that means that you need to live in the fear of the Lord, and you need to live by the fear of the Lord, and you need to live by the fear of the Lord, and you need to live by the fear of the Lord, and you need to live by the fear of the Lord, and you need to live by the fear of the Lord, and you need to live by the fear of the Lord, and you need to live by the fear of the Lord, and I need to live by the fear of the Lord. All of us have this responsibility. All of us have this role to live for God's pleasure, to live by the fear of the Lord, where we are so captured by, the, by our awe of the living, loving God that we will adjust everything about me in order to please him. That's our role. That's your role. That's my role. Now, certainly, certainly, For a healthy church, the pastor must live for God's pleasure. I must live by the fear of the Lord. But make no mistake, the pastor living by the fear of the Lord will never, ever trump you not living by the fear of the Lord. What creates a healthy church is when we're all in this together. All of us living by the fear of the Lord. Just because I do and a and, and, and hundred of you don't, my doing it doesn't trump you not doing it. 
We all need to be part of this journey of living for God's pleasure. So we're walking in the fear of the Lord. By the way, that's present continual action. We are living by the fear of the Lord. We're living for God's pleasure. Every attitude, every action, every thought, every emotion, every, every relationship, every belief structure, everything I do at work, everything I do at home, everything I do at the golf course, everything I do on social media, everything must be done for the pleasure of God. That's living by the fear of the Lord. So we live by the fear of the Lord. And the second thing is we walk by the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Walking in the fear of the Lord and walking by the comfort of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Now, the term comfort there is it, your, your translation may not say comfort. It may say encouragement. It may not say encouragement. It may say consolation. Uh, it, it's a term that means to come alongside of. So what, what's he saying? He said, well, we need to live by the fear of the Lord. We need to live for God's pleasure. And then the second thing is we need to live our lives led by the Holy Spirit. To come alongside the Holy Spirit, submit ourselves to the direction of the Holy Spirit, to, to whatever the Holy Spirit's going to be about, that's what I'm going to be about. I'm going to submit and surrender to the Holy Spirit so that my life is filled with the supernatural power of accomplishing God's purposes in the world. Now, living by the Spirit is not just something that the pastor does or a set group of elite leaders in the church do. No, this is, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Spirit of God dwells within you, and you today have a choice of either living led by the Spirit or ignoring the Spirit. In order for First Norfolk to be growing and vital, life-giving to the seven cities of Hampton Roads and around the world. For, the, for First Norfolk to fulfill her calling of ch- changing the world, we all must live led by the Spirit of God. We'll talk about that in just a second. So the question is, are you living for the pleasure of God in your emotions, in your thoughts, in your actions, in your relationships, in your finances, Are you living for the pleasure of God or for yourself? Uh, are Are you living led by the Holy Spirit? Are you being led by your emotions, by your feelings, by your thoughts, by your desires, by your ambitions? Are you, live, being li- are you living your life led by the Spirit of God as revealed in the Word of God? See, here's what makes a church vital. It's not just what I do. It's what we do. We are the church. A healthy church is God's plan to change the world. And friends, God planted us here to change the world. And you are vital for us fulfilling that mission. So how does this apply to our everyday life? Okay, so, so here's, here's some application points. The first thing we need to do, if we're going to live by the fear of the Lord and live led by the Spirit of the Lord, the first thing we need to do is we need to connect to the church. I mean, we need to connect to the church. Some of us have been sitting here in the church as casual observers. You may have your name on a roll somewhere, but you are a casual observer of the church. Guys, God never intended the church to be um, spectator sport. God never intended for your life to be a reflection of a solo journey. 
No, God established the church to be the community by which we grow together as the body of believers to the full measure of the stature of Christ. We see this in Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16, that God has gifted the church with special uh, giftings, apostles and prophets and teachers and pastors and, and other gifts that God has equipped you and I with, each one given a gift of grace. But we are one body And as one body, each part, each joint, that's you and me, each joint has a role to fulfill. And if I'm missing cartilage in my knee, I'm going to know that I can't run a marathon the way I could run a marathon if I had my cartilage in my knee. God has called us to be part of a mission for you to be part of the mission, not a casual observer, not a, not a water cooler critic of the things that you don't like about the church. No, again, this isn't Burger King. God's called you and me to get in the harness together to fulfill the mission that Jesus died on a cross and was raised from the dead to give us. But you got to connect to the church. You got to connect to the church now, some of you are casual observers. Some of you just aren't participants at all. You're not part of the church. You're, you come for worship. And again, please keep coming to worship. I'm not saying we're not going to kick you out. We love you to be here. But you're missing the full measure of, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus if you're disconnected from the family. God's called you to be a part of changing the world. You got to connect to the church. Some of you need to be members of the church. Again, I'm not just talking about putting your name on the dotted line. I'm talking about uh, finding your place in this family of faith so that together we can change the seven cities of Hampton Roads and literally change the world. We've got to connect with the church. Have you ever seen uh, the, those uh, regattas? So, you know, two pontoons and a big sail in between, and I don't know what those things are called, but you see these guys, uh, these teams in these races, and and these two pontoons attached and a big sail in between or a couple of sails, and and they, they try to, they lift those sails up and they try to catch all the wind that they can, so much so that one of the pontoons come out of the water, and you see people scrambling to the other side, and they start leaning over the edge there, and you see them doing all this business. I don't know what these things are, but they keep doing all these things and raising sail and, 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 and all that kind of stuff. You see all this work and all this effort. Nobody is just sitting idly by. Everybody is doing everything they can to catch the wind so that they might complete the race victoriously. God has called you to be on that team. And the wind of God's favor is blowing. And it takes all of us to hoist the sails to catch the full measure of God's favor for this church so that we might finish the race fulfilling the mission victoriously. It means that you and I need to be connected to the church. We live by the fear of the Lord and we follow Uh, the leadership of the Holy Spirit when we are connected to the church and when we obey God's Word. Not just study God's Word, not just read God's Word, not just hear about God's Word, but obey God's Word. We must obey God's Word. And that, again, is not just my job. It's our job. It's your job. It's my job. It's our job. 
And God's word becomes a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It gives us direction so that we might might not live in sin. It gives us comfort in days of, of, of trauma and pain. If we're going to live for God's pleasure, we got to know what God likes, what he wants, and what he desires. The way we get to know that is living led by the Spirit as we read the word of God and obey it. Are you obeying God's word? You know, by the way, God knows your heart and he knows my heart and he knows my heart even better than I know my heart. And he knows those places where I'm not being obedient to his word. And he convicts me today and says, get in line. You're hurting the entire body because you're not being obedient to God's word. We need to connect with the church. We need to obey God's word. The third thing we need to do if we're going to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit and live by the fear of the Lord is we need to devote ourselves to prayer. We've got to devote ourselves to prayer. Look, you're living in confusing times, and it seems like everything in our culture is a dumpster fire. And in the midst of the fog and the confusion, midst of all the crazy that surrounds us and swirls around us uh, or inside of us, we need the Holy Spirit of God to speak so that we can listen and obey. And he does that through his word. But he also does it in prayer. You know, sometimes I've learned I'm, I'm not a very good counselor. And, and if you've come to get counsel from me, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just not. I'm, I'm not. I'm not one of those guys that is, is really equipped to be a good counselor. But one of the things I have learned over my 30 years of counseling that I'm not very good at, um, one of the things I have learned is that many times people will come to me And it's not that they want me to solve their problem. They just need a place to speak their problem. If you have family, you know what I'm talking about. If you're a dad or a mom or a grandparent, you have friends, you you know what I'm talking about. They don't necessarily want you to solve their problem. They just want to be able to speak their problem. I got good news for you. (laughs) We have a God to whom we can speak our problem and he will solve our problem. We speak our problem through prayer, and he gives us comfort of the Spirit in the midst of our pain. He gives us hope found by the Spirit's pointing us in the direction of God's truth given in his word. When we devote ourselves to prayer, we're touching the very hymn of heaven, looking for God's great answers in response to our prayer. Yeah, God hears us when we pray, and it changes us, and it changes everything. We need to devote ourselves to pray. Are you a prayer warrior? Are you just a evening meal kind of prayer? God is calling all of us to devote ourselves to prayer. And the last thing I'd say is we, we need to share the gospel. Look, the first church changed the world because they took the message of God's rescuing love to everyone they encountered. It's no different today. In fact, I would contend, I wrote a whole PhD dissertation on the idea that the culture in which the first century church was positioned was a lot more challenging than the culture in which we live today. There were more gods. There was more plurality and pluralism. Uh, there uh, There was far less tolerance for Christianity in the first century than we have in America today. Um, and yet... In 30 years, 
after, the, after Christ ascended to the right hand of the throne of God, in those 30 years, they literally turned the world upside down. And that's what God wants to do through us. But we've got to go everywhere telling the good news. Is there somebody in your life that doesn't know Jesus? It's living far from God. What would happen if you were like Philip the deacon and you went and you just decided, you know, I'm going to tell him about Jesus. Can I tell you what has changed my life? Guys, this is your job. This is my job. This is our job. And when we, First Norfolk, First Norfolk on Kempsville, First Norfolk on Volvo, Iglesia Bautista del Camino, when First Norfolk is healthy, then the result will be God multiplies. Will you commit to fulfill your part in God's purpose for this church?